It's a privilege to be gathered together, isn't it? And it's a privilege for me this morning then to be able to open up God's word to you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Exodus chapter 34. As Dave mentioned this morning already, and you don't need me to tell you, we live in a world gripped by pandemic. Uh, You can't escape hearing about it constantly, all the time. Uh, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, the head of the World Health Organization, announced on this past Wednesday that COVID-19 is now a global pandemic. This virus that had appeared in Wuhan, Hubei province, in December of last year has now spread to 123 nations around the world infecting some 150,000 people. Uh, This past Friday, just two days ago, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson warned his country that it faces the worst public health crisis for a generation. He said the following. He said, I must level with you. Many more families are going to lose loved ones before their time. You turn on the television and you hear things about schools closing, whole countries in lockdown, stock market crashing, sports events cancelled. And the fruit of this is that we can find ourselves looking to the future and suddenly feeling very, very afraid. Afraid for our own personal health and well-being, possibly, or maybe for that of some loved ones. Afraid for our finances as perhaps stocks and investments vanish. Afraid for our job as the economy slows down and we begin to wonder, will I have work next week? Will I be able to pay the mortgage or pay the rent? And we can find our minds wandering to disaster scenarios. Can I be honest with you guys this morning? I feel it. You know, there's a palpable anxiety in the air in the community we live in. You know, last week our passage was so providential, I believe, from God. Uh, Moses seeking reassurance after Israel's disastrous sin. The golden calf was this huge betrayal. It left Israel so rattled and uncertain about the future. God viewed their relationship with him like a marriage and had given the law as kind of vows on a wedding day. And they blatantly defied them immediately after receiving them uh, as though at the altar or perhaps adultery on your very wedding night. And so Moses had taken the two tablets of stone that had the Ten Commandments written on them and smashed them into pieces, symbolic of their relationship with God, which was shattered as a result of their sin. And God had threatened to wipe them out and to start again with Moses. And Moses had pleaded with God and God had said he would relent. God had said, though, that he would send his angel before them, but would not go with them. And in our passage last week, Moses came before the throne of God and he repeatedly, over and over again, 
pleaded with God for reassurance that God would be not only with him, but with them as people. And God answers in amazing fashion, promising he will go with them, just as for us, the Lord Jesus also promises to us as well. But do you know what, friends? There's great news. Because just as last week, so too this week, God in his grace has provided us with a passage equally providential for our situation. You know, it's one thing to know that God is with us. But we also need to know something more. It's one thing to know that God is with us, but we need to be reminded of something else. And that is what he is like. Here is what our passage providentially this morning reassures us of what he is like. And that is that he is good. Where do I get that from? Well, in chapter 33, verse 18, Moses pleads with God for a final sign that God is with him. He pleads with God and says in verse 18, show me your glory. Show me something of yourself that I might know that you're with me. And God replies to him in verse 19 of chapter 33 and says the following to Moses. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's an unusual thing to say, isn't it, in many ways. I will make all my goodness pass before you. But what does it actually mean? God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will declare to you my name. You see, to know God's goodness is to know his very name. If you want to see the goodness of God, you need look any further than his divine name. His name perfectly encapsulates his goodness. You see, the list of qualities that God will announce before Moses in his display of glory is a display of his divine goodness. And if we want to know the goodness of God in midst of this current crisis, we need look, not look any further than this declaration of his name. See, today's message is going to be a little bit different in a way from other messages. It's going to be a meditation on the character of God, in particular, a meditation on his goodness. If you're taking notes this morning uh, for this message, I've entitled it, his goodness passed by. And we're going to look at three points, which are really three character traits that come to us in this passage, all of which reflect his goodness. Three character traits, but one hope for us. 
And that is in the midst of a world gripped by fear, we would be freshly amazed by the goodness of God. I'm going to read our passage as we begin this morning from Exodus chapter 34, and then I'm going to invite you to join me in praying. Let's read from Exodus chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the mountain in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Would you join with me in praying? For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. 
Lord God, as your people this morning, we wish to pause and remember that you alone are our rock and our salvation, our fortress, our help. Nothing else but you can save us. No medicine, no ingenuity, no government policy, no righteous life, nothing but you. And Lord, this morning we come before your throne as your people and we're in need of encouragement from you. So we ask and we pray, Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would you make your word to Moses and to us come alive for us this morning? And would it give us great confidence that you and you alone are good? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, let's dive right in this morning and begin to unpack uh, this passage of Scripture with point number one, the first character of God or characteristic of God that is revealed in this passage, the first aspect of his goodness, which is the God of compassion and grace. In our passage today, God continues his conversation with Moses from inside the tent of meeting. Having explained that he will make his goodness pass by, he declares his name. He explains that he can't reveal his unfiltered presence to Moses lest it completely destroy him. However, he explains to Moses that he will hide him in a cleft of rock and he will protect him with his hand as he passes by before him and show him just his back or a Hebrew expression meaning just a glimpse of him. Read with me again those first couple of verses in our passage, chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flock or herds graze opposite that mountain. You know, there's grace already all over these words as God tells Moses to make two new tablets of stone, already signaling that God intends to make with Moses a fresh covenant, a new covenant. And Moses is to be this lone figure coming up into God's presence on Mount Sinai. There's not to even be any animals dwelling in the midst of Mount Sinai. Imagine the scene of the towering peak of Mount Sinai as Moses is to be all alone as he begins to make his trek up to the top of the mountain. The representative of God's people, a stone tablet under each arm. This elderly man begins the long trek to the top of the mountain to meet with God himself. Read with me again in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord descends in this cloud that symbolizes his presence and he stands near Moses, covering him in the cleft of the rock as he passes by. Moses had asked, 
Reassure me, God, that you're with me. Show me your glory. I want to see your face. And God had said, you can't see my face, but you can see just a glimpse. But notice how now God doesn't actually visually show Moses anything. Even if there was something to be seen, Moses wouldn't have seen it because verse 8 says that Moses falls to his face in worship. You see, the way the Lord reveals his glory to Moses, the way the Lord reveals his goodness to Moses is to pass by and proclaim truths to him about himself. You see, the revelation of glory before us this morning, church, is not a vision, but a sermon. What follows are some of the most important verses in the whole of the Bible. How do I know this? Because it's repeated literally dozens of times throughout it. If we would see God's glory this morning, church, if we would see God's goodness this morning, church, we also need to hear what God is like, just like Moses did. And the first thing that God reveals about himself is that he's a God of compassion and mercy. It says, or the Lord says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. You know that word in Hebrew, raham, it means to be fond of or to be tender like a mother is with her children. Perhaps better to be full of sympathy or compassion. Here's a question. Is that how we think of God? Tender like a mother with her children. You know, recently uh, with Elijah, we've been (laughs) experimenting, trying with the cry it out method. And uh, I have to say, I probably find it most difficult of anyone in the house. It breaks my heart. Recently, we decided we were going to write, no going into him at all. He's just going to have to cry it out once down. That's it. You know, I need to man up. Um, but we completely forgot that we'd given him the meningococcal vaccine that morning, the Bexera that can give you like a high fever and all this sort of thing. Anyway, he cried straight for an hour and 45 minutes before he finally fell asleep for five minutes and woke up screaming again, which time I went in to grab him and he was burning up with a fever. We placed him in the uh, baby seat and he was just like wouldn't even eat his food, just like dazed and then just like vomited like everywhere. And I thought, oh my goodness, like what a terrible parent I am. But just that picture of how your heart goes out to a small child in need, full of compassion for that child, tender like a mother with her children. That is how the Lord has revealed himself to be. But more than that, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. You know, that word means that he does not treat people as they deserve. Grace in the Bible means undeserved kindness. It means that God treats wicked people with love and mercy. You know, so often in our culture, we find ourselves baying for blood. 
Uh, If you're a cricketer, you'll remember the recent Sandpapergate scandal with Steve Smith and Cameron Bancroft and David Warner, how they'd cheated using sandpaper to sort of alter a ball in cricket. And it was a national scandal and people were crying out, get rid of them. Shame on you. Shame on you. Or perhaps more recent examples of characters like Eddie Obeid or George Pell or Israel Flower, where people just cry out for their blood. Get rid of them. Be gone from our society. But that's not what God is like. He's gracious and merciful. He loves to treat people with kindness. But more than that, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. You know, on initial reading, you might think that this is kind of like God has a high sin tolerance. Like he waits to be provoked just enough and then he just explodes in anger or something like that. But that's, that's not what this means. It, it means he has incredible patience. He waits patiently for his creatures to repent and turn back to him. Second uh, Peter 3.9 says it so perfectly. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's slow to anger. He's patient. More than that, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know, anytime you read that word in your English translation, steadfast love, it's usually the Hebrew word hesed, which is a, a specific word in the Bible that refers to God's love for his people as expressed in his commitment to a covenant with them. It's his kind of marriage vow love. It's his covenant love. You know, just like a faithful spouse whose partner deserts them, and yet that faithful partner is solid as a rock in loyalty and in forgiveness and keeps pursuing that partner who's wandered away from them. That is a picture of God's hesed, his steadfast love for us. He is abounding in steadfast love. You know, our culture when it comes to love is so often fickle. It's based purely on feeling or it's transactional. When the cost becomes too high, I'm out and I'm gone. But not so with God. He is abounding in steadfast love. More than that, he's abounding in faithfulness as well. That word means trustworthiness, constancy, faithfulness. It says keeping steadfast love for thousands. It echoes the second commandment in Exodus 20 where God promises to love a thousand generations of those who keep his commands. What would it take for you to go back on your word? Financial stress, ill health, relational difficulties, career opportunity. Not so with God. He is abounding in steadfast love and in faithfulness as well. Even more than that, it says forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You know, God proclaims three different types of things he forgives to show us how broad his forgiveness is. 
He forgives iniquity. That's just wrongdoing or transgression. That's kind of more serious things like rebellion and law-breaking or crime. And sin, the kind of broad term that covers everything else. The point is God loves to forgive. But do you know what the truth is? Forgiveness is a great concept. But it's hard when it's against you. I just was thinking about this week, many years ago, when I was a subject of some quite harsh gossip and slander. And I just found myself so angry with the people who were gossiping about me. And I found it incredibly difficult to forgive them. But not so with God. He loves to forgive. God reveals his glory to Moses by passing by him and declaring truths about what he's like. And he declares that he is the God of compassion and the God of mercy. But if that's all we knew of God, we would have a wrong, a very wrong perspective about God. You see, our culture loves every single item on that list. Compassion, great, gracious, great, excellent, slow to anger, that's wonderful. Steadfast in love, really good. Forgiving, excellent. But there's a couple of other components of his goodness that are missing from this list. And that brings us to point two, not just the God of compassion and grace, but the God of justice. You see, the mercy and justice of God are like two train tracks that exist side by side. You see, God's mercy is meaningless without his justice. If he wasn't just, there'd be no need for us to even receive mercy in the first place. But notice something special about the arrangement of this passage, how it's different from the giving of the second commandment where justice comes first. Here at the renewing of the covenant, It's grace and mercy that comes first. Friends, God is, even in this, showing tenderness to his people. Read with me again, verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty who will by no means clear the guilty. The way it's written is emphatic. Who will absolutely never leave the guilty person unpunished? God is saying one thing about me that you can be sure of is that the guilty will always receive just punishment. He goes on, who will by no means clear the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Wait, hang on a second. How is that fair? I mean, does this mean that God punishes children for what their parents have done? Absolutely not. We must read it in light of the whole counsel of God. And in Ezekiel 18.20, God says the following. He says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. 
You see, God is just and people are punished for their own sins, not those of other people. Well, what does it mean then? I think this verse has a twofold meaning. Firstly, it means that God has designed the world in such a way that the sins of parents are often passed on to their children. And you need to look no further than the foster care system to understand that. That parents that abuse their children are more likely to have children that then go on to abuse others. It's not the primary meaning of this passage, however. To actually understand the main meaning of this passage, you need to read it in the context of the preceding verse. And that is, who will by no means clear the guilty. See, the meaning, the primary meaning of this passage is that God will continue to punish unrepentant sinners generation after generation. He will not simply punish fathers for sin and leave their children unpunished as though his wrath could be satisfied that easily. When children follow in their father's steps into sin, they will face punishment from God. God will continue to punish all sinners generation after generation after generation. You see, God reveals his goodness to Moses by passing by him and declaring truths about what he is like. He declares that he is the God of compassion and the God of mercy, but also that he is the God of justice who will never clear those deserving of punishment. You see, God's justice is an essential part of his goodness. All people will receive the right punishment for their wrongs. You know, when we look at the world and we see so much brokenness in the world, so much evil and exploitation and abuse and greed that so often goes unpunished in this lifetime. When we look at the world and we see panic and selfishness and exploitation of those in need, there's something in us that longs for justice. But the justice of God creates a massive problem for us. I think John Piper puts it so well when he says the following. He says, injustice is to treat others worse than they deserve. And the more respect they deserve, and the less we render, the greater the injustice. God alone deserves the highest respect and praise and love and fear and devotion and allegiance and obedience of all beings in the universe. Yet every single human being in this room and on this planet has fallen short of this worship and have exchanged the glory of God for the creation. Therefore, every human is guilty of an injustice that is infinitely worse than all the injustices against man summed up totally throughout all history. God is infinitely deserving of complete worship, trust, and obedience. Therefore, in treating God as unworthy of our total allegiance, every human is guilty of an infinite injustice against God. And that's our biggest problem everywhere. Did you catch that? Because injustice at its heart is treating people worse than they deserve, we are guilty of infinite injustice against the one and true living God. 
You see, the justice of God is both an essential part of his glory and goodness, and yet terrifying for us. We are guilty of an injustice that is infinitely worse than all the injustices of man against man summed up throughout all of history. And here is the great paradox in the revelation of God's goodness to Moses. He loves to forgive, but in his justice, he will never forgive without punishment. How on earth can that be possible? Well, resolution is found in a quality of God you might not expect. And it brings us to our third point for this morning. Not just the God of grace and mercy, the compassionate God, not just the God who is just, but point number three, the God who is jealous. It's not a quality of God you might think of at first when trying to understand his goodness. And yet I put to you this morning, friends, it's essential. See, Moses, having heard God declare these truths about himself, bows his head to the ground in worship. He then pleads that God might forgive them and dwell with them. God then affirms that he's making a new covenant with them, that he will marry them again. And he gives them a list of laws specific for their time in Canaan, kind of tailored in light of their failure with the golden bull. They're not to have anything to do with idols. They're not to make another idol, not to marry with people of other religions. They're to destroy all the altars of people that they come into in the foreign land and to get rid of their sacred stones and things of worship. They're to keep the three feasts he's commanded and the Sabbath. And then he summarizes why with one final revelation of his name. Read with me. Verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. The Lord your God's name, his very being, is jealous. God is saying, An essential part of my name, an essential part of my being, essential part of my goodness is that I am jealous. But how is that a good quality? I mean, isn't jealousy a bad quality? Doesn't it mean that someone is craving something that's not theirs? Is it kind of like spiteful? I think J.I. Packer explains it so helpfully in his book, Knowing God. He says the following. He says in commenting on this very passage, but there is another sort of jealousy. Zeal to protect a love relationship or to avenge it when broken. This jealousy also operates in the sphere of sex. There, however, it appears not as the blind reaction of wounded pride, but as the fruit of marital affection. As Professor Tasker has written, married persons who felt no jealousy at the intrusion of a lover or adulterer into their home would surely be lacking in moral perception. For the exclusiveness of marriage is the essence of marriage. 
See, God's jealousy is his zeal to protect his love relationship with us. You know, it could be possible to think that God is both merciful and just, but then somewhat apathetic to us in our plight, sitting back and waiting for us to turn to him. Absolutely not. God is jealous for us. God is zealous to protect our relationship with him. He will not sit back. God seeks our highest good, what we would also seek or what we ought also seek, which is to glorify him. He doesn't idly sit back in the world and allow people to dishonor him. He is constantly working to see his plans for his glory achieved in the world. And there is nothing, therefore, that is happening in the world today that is outside of God's plan for his name to be glorified among all creation. There is nothing happening in the world today that could ever thwart his plan to glorify his name, his goodness among all the nations. How do we know that? How can we have confidence that that is true? He is the Lord whose name is jealous. And he is jealous for his glory. The Lord says the following in Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Chapter 48.11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You see, the glory of today's passage isn't just that God has revealed his goodness to us as a merciful and yet just God, but that he has reassured us of his commitment to protecting his people and displaying his goodness to the universe by declaring that he is also jealous. And the greatest display of his jealousy the greatest display of his commitment to protect his relationship with us is seen at the foot of the cross. See, God is full of mercy and compassion. He is slow to anger and abounding in covenant love. God is just and he will never let the guilty go without punishment. But because he is jealous and so committed to protecting his love relationship with us, Because he is not apathetic and neutral to us, but a husband who is watching someone else enter our relationship and is zealous to protect, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to endure a place-taking death, to absorb in full his just punishment for our forsaking and dishonoring of him, to satisfy both his love and justice in one moment on that cross. And to enable us once again to be reconciled to him simply through faith and repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did God need to send his son? Not at all. But he did it because he is so jealous for us. You see, God's jealousy is a beautiful part of his goodness. And it should give us such assurance. You know, Paul writes the following in Romans 8.31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all thanks? God is the God whose name is jealous. Well, in summary, amazing is the goodness of God that passed by Moses. That he's the God of compassion and mercy. That he's the God that loves to forgive and treat people with kindness. That he is the God who's just and will never let the guilty go without punishment. That he is the God who's jealous for us. That he desires to preserve our relationship with him and was willing even to send Christ in order to reconcile us to him again. Well, how should we respond to what we've heard? How should we respond in light of the present crisis that we face? Where we are so tempted to feel fear for our own personal health and safety or perhaps that of loved ones. Where we're so tempted to feel fear for our finances as stocks vanish. Where we're so tempted to feel fear concerning our employment as the economy slows down. And we wonder, will I have work? Will I be able to pay the mortgage or the rent? When our minds wander to disaster scenarios. Friends, this morning's message has a very simple and yet vital application for us. A simple and vital application that will help us to remain faithful to God amidst this present crisis. A simple and vital application that will help us to honor and glorify him when the whole earth seems to shake. And that is this. That we must regularly stop and behold the goodness of God that passed by Moses. We need to regularly stop and behold his goodness. We need to remember that he's promised that he'll always be with us. And we need to remember not just that he's with us, but that he's good as well. That he's merciful and compassionate. That your situation is not hidden from him and he deeply cares. That he's just and he will not let the world continue to dishonor him without due punishment. That he's jealous and he will act to preserve his relationship with those he loves and to see his name glorified in the whole earth. Here's the question I want to leave you all with, whether you're listening in online or whether you're right here this morning and as you go out. The question is this. In the coming weeks and months, when everything around you seems to scream panic, how will you make regular time to stop and behold the goodness of God? When your neighbors, your community are panicked, how will you stop to make regular time and behold the goodness of God? Maybe it's by taking a longer lunch break just to pray. Maybe it's putting a scripture to memory. Maybe it's preaching some of the truths that we've been talking about this morning to yourself. Maybe it's finding multiple brief, quiet moments throughout your day just to meditate on scripture. Maybe it's even in reading the Bible more than reading the news. Well, friends, my hope 
My prayer, our prayer as a pastoral team is that in the midst of a world gripped by fear, we would be freshly amazed by the goodness of God. Would you pray with me? Lord God, as your people, how can we do anything but come before your throne and thank you? Lord, thank you. Thank you for this morning's revelation of who you are. Thank you that you're a God of mercy and compassion, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Thank you that you're a God of justice who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. And thank you, Lord, that you're jealous. You're not apathetic towards us, but you deeply care about us. So much so that you were willing to send Christ for us. Lord, how can we ever thank you enough for that miracle of grace? And our prayer as your people this morning who so often come in weakness, not in strength, is that in the midst of global pandemic, in the midst of an uncertain future, we would never ever cease beholding you and your goodness, declaring our trust in you, declaring that we know that you are with us and for us and that you are good. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.